Oh, amen. Now my custom to have a computer up here. Uh, the reason why is uh, in the hustle and bustle of trying to get here today and getting ready for Sunday school that I haven't taught in a while. I, that's my manuscript at home. So <clears throat> technology is what it is, and here it is. So not all is lost. Okay. Why don't we pray one more time, ask for the Lord just to bless us as we enter into his word. Let's pray. Father, we understand the gravity of what's at stake in our faith, even as the Apostle Paul here talks about the fact that his greatest fear was that perhaps he would labor in vain. That is, that the gospel would be lost among the Thessalonians because of external circumstances, at least in this book. And certainly, Lord, we understand that we can be bombarded by all sorts of different things that influence us in this world that would cause us to move from our original steadfastness. And so we pray, Lord, that you would, by your grace, by your mercy, and for your glory, that you would preserve us today, that you would strengthen our faith, that our the roots of our endurance will go down deep into the soil of Scripture and that Your Word would have that faithful, effective power in our lives to vivify us, to strengthen us, to conform us into Your image and to strengthen us, Lord, to hold fast our confession to the end. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see what are the means that you have chosen to do this in our life. We desperately need it. We ask for your help now, your guidance. Be glorified, Lord, in all that we say here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, this chapter is broken up pretty neatly into three sections that I have been able to outline. Verses 1 to 5 today, we're going to be looking at what it means to strengthen the church, but Overall, the context here is what we can call biblical leadership. And if verses 1 through 5 is how we strengthen the church, then verses 6 down to 10 is how we evaluate or how we examine the church. And then verse uh, 11 down to the end of the chapter is really looking at how the leaders are to pray for the church. So it's a simple outline, strengthening the church, examining the church, and praying for the church. That's what Paul gives us here. And in this section, I want to look at what exactly Paul did in order to strengthen this church. Uh, Remember what the Thessalonian church is. Paul now having been removed from them for a short while. This is a young church. This is a church that's been in existence only for maybe a few months at this time. And um, they need to be strengthened in the gospel because there's a real potential for apostasy. Um, What is the potential for apostasy, where does it arise? Well, it arises out of persecution here. And so think about it. I mean, think about that principle in Scripture. You strike the shepherd and the sheep are scattered. If Paul is going to be persecuted the way that he is, he's going to be torn away from them. It would be easy for this church to conclude if our founder, if our spiritual father in the faith, if he is persecuted, if he is, let's say, martyred for the faith, what will become of us? And so they are shaken to the core here, and the need for leadership is dire. 
And so let's look at some of the components that are given to us here as far as how do we strengthen a church and how did Paul do it? The number one thing to see here is that leaders strengthen the church through godly encouragement. There you find that very quickly in verse 2. Let's read this again. It says, Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind in Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker, fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith. And there's really two ways that he does that. Um, we see that based on his uh, his leadership, his characteristics, his virtue, uh, we can see, and we can also see that by his effectiveness uh, with this church. You know, that's the reason why leadership exists. Leadership exists primarily for your encouragement. As a matter of fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he existed uh, for their joy. That's the whole reason he existed. Well, that's actually 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. That's the whole purpose that he existed. His pastoral ministry, his apostolic ministry, was for the joy of the church. I tell you what, if the leadership in the church is not producing joy in you, something is wrong. Uh, because that's really what we ought to do. That's what we ought to be, is that we ought to be helpers, fellow workers with God, so that you can rejoice and glory and glorify and, and bless God more and more and more in your own life. That's a trajectory. That's the whole purpose of doing this. Encouragement in the local church can take all sorts of different shapes and sizes. I mean, encouragement can come to you on a personal level. I mean, we're talking as basic as taking a person out to coffee and encouraging them in the faith with the Word. Or it can be intense. Um, I think of an encouragement that is as intense as, let's say, a marathon runner and is running the last lap of a lengthy marathon, and through the grueling pain and through the exhaustion of it all, there's his coach on the side spurring him on and encouraging him to keep going, not to look back, to press on. Sometimes encouragement looks like that. But we need encouragement. Let's be honest. You and I need to be strengthened daily. And I love this passage of Scripture because it reminds us of our desperate need for the means of grace in our life. We need God's Word. We need to partake of the Lord's Supper. We need to partake of the fellowship of the church. We need to be sitting under the preaching of the Word of God. And we need discipleship. Those are all things that we need as Christians. Sadly, today, many Christians struggle with availing themselves not only to the means of grace, but generally availing yourself to fellowship, to accountability, to friendship in the church. Uh, You know, over the past decade or so, I think that's been one of the most challenging things in pastoral ministry for me is people that either don't know how to encourage somebody else or don't know how to receive encouragement from somebody else in order to be strengthened. But we need it desperately. Look with me in in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15 very quickly. This is a verse that I go uh, back to time and again. Romans chapter 15 Beginning in verse 14, just to understand what is God's will for us in this. You see it right here. He says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, 
and able to admonish one another. That word admonish there should be taken synonymously with the concept of strengthening the church, of admonishing one another, of encouraging one another. But it only happens, beloved, when you are full of goodness. So you've got to have the right motive in fellowship. And second of all, you are full of knowledge. You need both. Uh, it's not enough just to have good motives to be a nice person. Uh, in order to be effective in the body of Christ, the one another's of Scripture, incur- here we're talking about encouraging one another, loving one another in this way, you need to be filled with knowledge. Uh, you need to be a little theologian if for no, no other reason, for the sake of being able to wisely encourage your brother or your sister in Christ. The person next to you deserves that because they are your brother, your sister in the household of God. We need to be full of goodness and knowledge. And that's exactly what Timothy was. Timothy was a godly leader that Paul trusted enough to send in his place. I want want you to turn to two scriptures. Go to Philippians chapter 2, and then I'm going to have you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. But in Philippians chapter 2, you know, I've quoted this time and time and time again, and it never ceases to impress me how much the Apostle Paul how much stock he put into his young protege. And the reason why is not because the Apostle Paul had favoritism in his heart. It wasn't because, well, Timothy's my buddy, and so he's going to be really close to me in the ministry. No, 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 not at all. The reason why Timothy was in the place, in the position, why Timothy was used in the fashion that he was used is because Paul saw a young man that had the necessary virtue to lead the church and to serve as an emissary for the apostles. Look at, look at the language. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. So here's yet another church that Paul trusts Timothy to send Timothy as a delegate to dispatch him to go do ministry for him. And he says, so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. I remember the concern of the church. Oh man, you know, some scholars would say after the litany of sufferings that you see there in 2 Corinthians 11, at the very end there, the Apostle Paul lists at the very end, says, after all these things, the stonings, the whippings, the, the, the persecutions, after all these things, my intense concern for the churches. Some people would say that that's what weighed on Paul more than anything. He could take a beating But what seemed to vex him the most is what's the condition of the church? What's the health of the church? That is what weighed on him day and night. Even as he languished in a cell, he was concerned about the welfare of the church. And what Paul is saying is that Timothy is a kindred spirit. He shares the same critical pastoral concern for the church. Look at what he says in verse 21. For they, and it doesn't define who they are, just seems like other men, other people, other leaders maybe. They all seek after their own interests and not those of Christ Jesus. Wow. It seems from here, as we're talking about principles of biblical leadership, one of the things in biblical leadership that's absolutely indispensable, necessary, critical, it's a mark of qualification really, is that you have the interests of Christ. That you're not self-willed. That, in, that ministry is not there to serve your end, but that you're, you're there in ministry to serve the end of Christ. That's what ministry is all about. It's all by Him and for Him. 
Verse 22 says, you know of his proven worth. You see that? Timothy was a man of tested character. People understood corporately that he was a man of virtue. He served with me as a f- in the furtherance of the gospel uh, like a child serving his father. So in other words, Timothy was also a man of humility. He was humble enough to receive. He was humble enough to be mentored. He was humble enough to be discipled by a spiritual superior. That's absolutely indispensable. You know, the men that God uses to become pastors are men who are presently and constantly assets to other pastors. I mean, that's just, that's just a dead giveaway. When a person is useful for ministry, for presently as a non-pastor for pastors, he becomes a pastor. That's the way it always works. Now turn over to 2 Corinthians, because it's not just Timothy. Paul was good at recognizing when he saw leadership, uh, biblical leadership, godly leadership, and the characteristics that come with that. In uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we find the same language being attributed to Titus and then to an unnamed brother uh, who we do not know who it was, but he's listed there. And the language is reminiscent of all this. Look at what he says. Thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness. This is 2 Corinthians 8 verse 16. He says, God puts the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. I love that language of earnest. In other words, when it comes to the concern and the care and the shepherding of the local church, Titus had a zeal about him. There was a passion in his heart for the people of God. He wasn't trying to avoid God's people. He was passionate for them. What a wonderful description of a shepherd's heart. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you in his own accord. He's willing to do the hard things that were required of him in ministry. We have sent along with him, and here it is, the brother whose fame in these things of the gospel has spread throughout all the churches. Not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and, show, uh, and to show our readiness. Why do I quote that, quote that last extended verse? Because what's the context here of, of 2 Corinthians chapter 8? Well, chapter 8, chapter 9, they both go together. Why? Because this is a financial issue. <laughs> you know, finances in the church are a sensitive subject. Who handles the finance? How they're handled? Those can be extremely delicate issues. This shows you the trustworthy of the Apostle Paul that he takes or he sends Titus and the brother that went with him, and he trusted them to the degree that even on financial matters, they were willing to be trusted. The other thing is this that we see Timothy, if you go back to Thessalonians, he not only is a man that cares for the church, that loves the church, that's earnest about the church, that imparts his life to the church, like uh, Paul mentioned there in chapter one of himself, uh, chapter two earlier of himself, but he's also effective. Uh, that's important too. Uh, look at what he says here. He says, "We sent Timothy, our brother, a fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and to encourage you as to your faith." In other words, he has to have the ability. Biblical leadership is about the ability to strengthen people spiritually. Uh, I mean, that begins with the subject 
of the priority or the objective of leadership, that the objective of leadership is not primarily administrative. It is not primarily managerial. It is not primarily organizational. It is primarily spiritual. It is primarily getting to the heart of the individual. That's what is needed. He was an effective minister, which means he had the zeal to carry it out. You know, I know I've known a lot of uh, really good godly men who've gone to school, they've earned degrees, they've gone through seminary, and yet they're still not doing the ministry they want to do because there comes a point in time where you have to act. You have to step out in faith and do it. Um, I think of Paul's words to Timothy in another place in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 5 as uh, Paul there is giving Timothy one injunction after another uh, Timothy do this Timothy preach in season out of season uh, Timothy instruct rebuke correct do all of these things at the very end there in verse 5 he says Timothy fulfill your ministry in other words do it you got to get going, right? After all, the planning is over, the praying is over. After all of that is over, at some point, talk is cheap, and you got to act. And you need to take steps of faith that a leader would take. You also, you just, you, you not only see the effectiveness here being carried out, but also the objective. What's the objective of Timothy? Well, this is wrapped up in his identity. Look at look at what it says. Timothy is. It says that Timothy is God's fellow worker. Now turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, because I want you to see this, um, I want you to see this phrase here, sunergos, which means to work together with or something like that. It's a compound word of with and energy or with and work. And what he's saying here is that Timothy was a co-laborer with God. Um, the reason I have you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is to show you that when it comes to the identity of Timothy as a fellow worker of God, what that immediately means for his identity is that he is rendered selfless. In other words, uh, God is everything and the, the worker that is working with God is nothing. You think that language might be too severe? Look at the text. You remember the context here? Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 5. The context is that the Corinthian church, plagued by problems, by the way. Uh, man, I tell you what, if you have any delusions of grandeur about Christianity, that Christianity is some sort of, you know, just everybody gets along, everything goes well, everything's going to be great. <laughs> First Corinthians will pop that bubble real quick. No, 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 no. Christianity is messy. Uh, ministry is messy. Church is hard. Being, fulfilling the one another's of Scripture is challenging. Um, And here, what's going on is that the church is becoming factious. There are factions. There's cliques. There are people who are saying things like these slogans. What then is Apollos? Excuse me. No, no, no. I'm backing up. Uh, When somebody says, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I, uh, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. Never forget that, guys. Never forget that in the dynamics of the local church, in the dynamics all the way from evangelism to personal discipleship, 
the dynamics in the local church is that God is the one who is effectively working through it all. It's his power. It's his spirit. It's his presence. He's the one doing it. Uh, You know how much gratification I get as a pastor here when I hear of things that are happening and they're really good and I had nothing to do with it? (laughs) I'm just like, praise God. It's like, that's what I'm talking about, Lord. He's working. I had nothing. I was asleep. And God is doing this. And that's exactly right. Why? Because we're nothing. He says, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters, but God who causes the growth, he who plants and he who waters is one, but each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's, here it is, fellow workers. You are God's field. God's building. God is interested in the church because it is his temple. He'll go on to call them the temple of God. God is building his temple through his servants. And the reason and the way that this happens is Timothy's selfless labor for the church. And the reason why he was so effective is because look at his objectives. Go back to the text there. He says, He was sent to strengthen and to encourage you as to your faith. That's right. Faith. Faith is abstract. Faith is non-physical. It is immaterial. Faith has more to do with your inner man than with your external circumstances. Timothy was there not to make sure that your life goes smooth, but that as difficult or as hard and as tumultuous as your life may get, your faith is intact. We are just not promised an easy road, are we, brothers and sisters? Do I have to quote the Scriptures? Well, maybe just a couple. John chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, In this world you will have tribulation. Acts chapter 14 The Apostle Paul goes on to say, through this life, we will, uh, in order to enter the kingdom in this life, we will have what? Tribulation. Through many trials and many tribulations, that's how we're going to enter the kingdom of God. But the ultimate priority in all of our external life and all of our external living, our coming and our going, everything is faith. It's the heart. It's that your commitment to Christ, your steadfastness, your confession of faith holds. Faith is the most precious commodity in Christianity. And it's also the commodity that's assaulted the most. You know that? Turn to Luke chapter 22. Because we understand that faith, even though it can be strengthened, at the same time, faith can wane. Faith can be weakened. Faith can be challenged. Faith can be attacked and assaulted by the enemies of faith. The world, the flesh, the devil. And when the devil came to assault Peter, what was Jesus' greatest priority? He says, Luke 22, beginning in verse 31, Simon, Simon, Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Why did he demand? Is Satan's demand? Here's a question for you. I agree with Satan here. His demands are right. Peter deserves to be sifted like wheat. 
He's not a good person. He's not pure. He is not righteous. He's not faithful. Are you kidding me? I'm going to get him to deny you to a servant girl next to a bonfire. How's that? The guy you said is the pillar of the church, the rock of the church, and upon his faith the, the, the church would be built. The one that you say, you are Petros. He's going to give you up for a bowl of soup. Satan's demands are logical, but they just don't take into account the gospel. Jesus graciously says, Peter, I have prayed for you that your life improves on planet earth. No. Peter, I have prayed for you that your bills are paid. No. Peter, I have prayed for you that you never get cancer or any other disease. No. Peter, I've prayed for you that your kids are perfectly obedient to to you when they get older. No. Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Because when the kids go crazy, when the economy, the culture, the job, when when everything goes crazy, the family, when everything goes crazy, your own mind It's faith that will hold you together. It's your faith. It's your commitment to Christ, in other words. And when he returned, notice the the wonderful way that Jesus says this. And when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Part of the way that God protects our faith, encourages our faith, strengthens our faith, and preserves our faith is through the ministry of the local church. Don't underestimate it, brothers and sisters. Do not underestimate the regulative means of grace. So I know sometimes it lacks luster. I know sometimes it may seem anticlimactic to walk through those doors. I know sometimes it feels like, if we're honest, you've got to drag yourself into the pew. But be not deceived. This means of grace that God has has chosen, namely the local church, is the means that He uses to keep us believing in the gospel and walking by faith. The other thing is that leaders strengthen the church. Well, first, leaders will strengthen the church through godly encouragement. Next, leaders are going to strengthen the church through godly counsel. Let's look at it again back in Thessalonians. He says here, he went to go strengthen their faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions for, here we go, here's our next point, for you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. You know what's so great about that little point right there? is it shows us that the counsel that Paul gave the church and through Timothy, number one, it was necessary. It's absolutely necessary. Why? Because it's hard for us to picture this, but try to involve yourself. Put yourself in the, in, in the shoes of these Thessalonians and think of yourself. You're a small little, probably a small little house church somewhere, right? And your spiritual founder, the apostle Paul, is suffering such persecution, you don't know you're ever going to see him again. It's like, man, if this is the nature of the Christian life, well, what is that going to mean for us? And so this counsel is desperately needed. And look at the counsel. Not only is it necessary, but his counsel is also forthright. He didn't hold anything back. 
I mean, Paul was brutally honest about his and our calling in this life. But let's take it exegetically. When, when Paul says, we have been destined for this, what he's saying is that apostolically, God has ordained that his apostles suffer. They are on the path of the cross. In October, we're taking a little trip down to Israel. One of the things that we'll do if you're going is we'll be going on to the Via Della Rosa. We'll be going on to the road where Jesus was said to have carried the cross to the mount to be crucified. You'll take that path. And if you're honest with the Christian life, we're all on that path. Everyone is on their own personal Via Della Rosa. And the more we wake up to this, the more prepared we're going to be when these trials come, with these tribulations, these tests, these persecutions, or whatever the world can throw at you. Turn to Acts chapter 20, if you would, with me. Here's we see a little bit of the consciousness of Paul. How did he do this? What was he thinking? How did he manage? I mean, you look at what Paul went through. Be honest with me. I look at that and I think, I don't know that I could handle that. I don't know if I could do, endure what Paul endured. It's too much. Look at Acts chapter 20. He gives us a little bit of a clue on how he did this. And now behold, verse 22. It says, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem knowing, not knowing what is going to happen to me there. Stop right there. How many of y'all would be comfortable with that ministry? I'm going to a mission field. No idea what's going to happen to me. Anybody want to come? No. We like security. We like assurances. We like to know where we're going, what we're doing, what's going to befall us. We don't do anything. We don't do anything unless we have some sort of assurance policy, right? I mean, I'm traveling a few times here in the next several months, and you know, I'm getting insurance in case something happens. Paul didn't have insurance going to Jerusalem. He had the assurance that he has no clue what is going to happen to him. Except this is one thing that's certain. All the particularities he does not know. What he does know is this. That the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies. Solemnly means the Spirit spoke at a time and in a way that was serious. Okay? He testifies and then, I love this, by the way, don't miss this in terms of the, just the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Number one, he testifies so, so much for the Spirit just being some sort of force or power. And then not, not, not only testifies, but Paul goes so far as to say that the Spirit says. He says, the Spirit saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And then in verse 24, the all-important uh, uh, adversative here, but... I do not count my life of any account as dear to myself. That's the number one problem with Christianity today. That's the number one reason why we lack power. It's the number one reason why we lack initiative. It's the number one reason why we do not engage in greater global evangelization. Is because our lives are very dear to us. I told you the story. I have a friend who went to Brazil to train um, Christians for Muslim ministry. They went through a program, took them about five years to get them fully equipped. At the end of the program, they bought a one-way ticket to a closed Muslim nation, never to return. 
I said, why do you go to Brazil? He said, very, very simple. Americans don't want to die. <laughs> wow. But that's exactly who Paul was. Paul was like, my life is not dear to me. It's, I consider it of no, it's not of any account to me. <laughs> so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. Wow, look at that, guys. He was focused on the task that God had for him. I testify solemnly of the gospel of his grace. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, just to see this a little bit further. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul tells the Thessalonians, in terms of our suffering, our affliction, our persecution, we have been destined for this. How? When? Where? Well, like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but for you, we're prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor to this present hour. We are both hungry and thirsty, poorly clothed. Watch this now. We are roughly treated. How many of us would fight back if we're roughly treated? Right? I mean, a lot of us, just because of the culture we're in, just because of the way it is, you get roughly treated. Let's say you're preaching or doing evangelism. Your initial reaction would be like, hey, get off of me. Defend myself here. No, Paul, Paul didn't do that. Paul was roughly treated. He suffered persecution. He endured it. He was homeless. You ever been homeless for the gospel? And we toil working with our own hands Watch this, guys. When we are reviled, boy, this will get right to our heart quick. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. You know what we do when we're slandered? We try to defend ourselves. Paul says, no. My gut reaction is reconciliation. I was talking with a brother this week. Just talking about how the greatest problem interrelationally in the church, among Christianity, in the community, in the church, is that we are often Christless. We're just not like Christ, guys. We need so desperately to grow to be more like Him. No wonder the whole objective of sanctification is to conform us into the image of Christ. Because it's more of Him that we need. Imagine if we had that attitude among us in the church, we're slandered. Somebody gossiped about us. First reaction, i got to go make things right. Surely this person has to be in error. What can I do? What have I done? Brother, sister, I'm sorry. What, how have I offended you? That's usually not our reaction, is it? The Apostle Paul endured all these things because he was destined for all these things. You know, it also reminds us that the nature of the Christian life being what it is and the fact that we will suffer persecution reminds us, if you would, turn with me to Matthew 13 of what the Lord Jesus Himself told us about the Gospel, told us about the nature of Christianity. And we, we better listen to Jesus to understand what the problem is in, in, in many Christian places and circles and with people. 
Because the last thing that we want to do is preach some sort of seeker-sensitive, prosperity-driven message of Christian ease, meaning ease as in convenience and comfort, and then have people under our discipleship smack up against reality and realize, no, life is actually really, really hard. As a matter of fact, when you become a Christian, your life actually may get even harder. That's why Jesus, when He invited people to follow Him, It was an invitation to take up a cross, an instrument of death. Jesus says in Matthew 13, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in the heart. And how much can we testify to that? This is the one on whom seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when, here we go, and when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And that's Paul's fear with the Thessalonians. Gordon Fee, in his commentary on Thessalonians, had a wonderful insight on this and got right to the character of the Christian worldview. Listen to what he says. Listen closely. The Christian faith, after all, beginning with the Lord Jesus himself, stands in total contradiction to the primary worldview and values of our fallen and broken world. It should therefore not be surprising that those who stand in opposition to such a world and its primary values, even if not verbally so, but by contrasting lifestyles, should regularly experience the scorn and the hatred of those who prefer Satan's values to Christ's. Perhaps the single most unfortunate result of Christendom as a cultural reality has been the overlay of a less than radical Christian worldview that allows God's people to coast rather than to experience the kind of expected discipleship that Paul speaks of here. So in other words, what he's saying is what we're looking for is how to put the car in neutral versus how to take up our cross and walk. And when we don't have that worldview we will be shaken. That leads us to the last point. Godly leadership consists of godly vigilance. Look with me at the last points here. He says, For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith, for fear that the tempter might have tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. Paul understood that in the midst of his ministry, in the midst of the life of the church, the influence of the culture, be not deceived. The devil is in the details. Satan's always at work, always seeking to sift somebody like we. And it reminds us of two things in terms of this vigilance, and that is the urgency of leadership and the gravity of leadership. The reason why we can't coast, brothers and sisters, the reason why we have to teach the way we do, we have to train the way we do, to quote the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28 and following, he says, we teach every man, instruct every man, we train every man, we make every man complete in Christ. The reason why is because it's urgent. Discipleship is urgent. We have a tempter. It's an interesting phrase, by the way, for Satan 
It's a substantival participle, literally the tempting one. The one who is accustomed to tempt. The tempting one is good at what he does. He's been good from the very beginning, right from the outset. He, the fall. <laughs> he was there in the garden, the initial fall of man. He was there when Cain killed Abel. John tells us Cain is of the... He's a, he was of the evil one. What he did conforms to the worldview, the standards, the ethics of the evil one. He was there during the flood of Noah when the whole world was given over to violence and bloodshed. God had to wipe the whole world out. He was there at the Tower of Babel. We learned in Sunday school today. He was there at the Tower of Babel uniting the whole world in some sort of godless, Christless effort to unify autonomously. Under one ethic, one language, one goal. He was there with Job in his temptation. He was there with Christ in the wilderness with his temptation. And he is there in Paul's little church that he just established in Thessalonica, right in the epicenter of a pagan hub of the ancient world. There is Satan at work. And he's still at work today. It's urgent and it's grave. It's grave because all is at stake. You know that in Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is not rebuking them. You see any rebuke here? You see any rebuke in the text? It's not like Galatians, right? Oh, foolish Galatians! I am amazed that you are deserting the gospel. This is a different plan of attack. Satan is not so much using heresy as he is using the culture, using the circumstances. And you and I today, I think we're in the same boat. The circumstances that we're in, the oppression that we're surrounded by. And what happens when our culture goes from being just merely oppressive to being overtly violent against Christianity? This is why we've got to pay attention. This is why we need to learn the mystery that Paul learned of being content in all circumstances. Philippians chapter 4. Because it could be, maybe in my lifetime, maybe in our children's lifetime, but it could be that our culture goes with the predominance of the world. That persecutes Christianity. That just oppresses it. You know, I think right now we've got it kind of easy, right? I I think we've got it real easy. Matter of fact, I was watching... uh, uh, Mike Pence, Vice President Mike Pence, he's going all this, <laughs> called, I called it a preaching circuit. <laughs> he went to the Southern Baptist, he went to this other faith uh, convention, he went, and there he is, <laughs> Vice President of the United States, preaching the gospel. And I thought, I will never know the hypocrisy that is at work there. I don't know. But what I do know is that this is a massive reprieve for the church Why did God raise up a guy like Donald Trump, who's probably very liberal at heart, but is doing a lot of conservative things? Is that so that we will all become Republicans? No, it's so that we will advance the gospel in peacetime and take advantage of Rome. Okay, Pax Romana, we're on it. We'll travel the whole Roman world and evangelize the world. While you guys are over here fighting about, you know, the president's tweets. That's why God does that stuff. That's why he didn't give us a president that is so insanely liberal. Guys, I couldn't believe, you know my sermon's coming to an end, right? But the story's too good. 
I couldn't believe the debate when the, the would-be president of the United States said that she would absolutely vote for partial birth abortions. Uh, they said even liberals in the audience gasped. Like, wow. Never heard anybody just say it like that. You're actually going to kill a baby partially born because of whatever circumstance. I mean, wow. And I don't think that our present, present administration is doing enough to end abortion like it should, like it promised. But we certainly don't want that. So what is all that about? It is a temporary little reprieve, apparently, so that the gospel of Jesus Christ can flourish in the American church and hopefully go to the ends of the world. But when all that changes when those little temporary reprieves are over, and we find ourselves not under some liberal, but under some tyrant. And they're going further. Southern California recently lobbied to try to pass legislation that makes it illegal for certain entities to sell books, even if it's the Bible, because it teaches that you can be healed from homosexuality. I mean... That's where we're at. That's the context that we find ourselves in. Outlawing Christian literature because it says that you can go from being homosexual to being heterosexual? Wow. I'm not sure what's going to happen. I don't know. I'm, no, I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I just know if we don't take texts like this serious that speak about persecution because we are not presently under persecution, when persecution comes, we're not going to be ready for it. Let me pray for us. Father, I... I simply ask that you would help us to be men and women of the whole counsel of God. That we don't look at a text and say, well, that doesn't apply to me right now just yet. Or that doesn't apply to me in the way it applied to Paul and the early church. But help us to understand that all of Scripture is profitable, inspired of God. It's profitable for correction, instruction, reproof. All those things so that we could be equipped, lacking nothing. And so, God, we pray that as the full counsel of God is preached, Lord, that we would take heed. And, Lord, we pray that you would make us men and women of character, like the character that we see in all these godly leaders that are given to us in Scripture. We know they're just men. They're just fallible men. But in the midst of that fallibility... There is still exemplary behavior and exemplary models for us to follow. And Lord, at every level, whether it's for the sake of our marriage, for the sake of our family, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our co-worker, for the sake of one another in the church, or for the sake of leaders in the church, let us take these principles to heart. Because we need the character above everything. We don't need the office. We need the character. And so, God, would you graciously, by your Spirit, produce that in us. Oh, by by the power of your Spirit and and through the principle of grace, may we grow into this virtuous man and woman of God for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.